This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. And I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. This is your public radio station, KUAF. On our show today, the path that led Winthrop Rockefeller to become the first Republican governor in Arkansas in almost 100 years. John Kirk's new biography, Winthrop Rockefeller, From New Yorker to Arkansas Year, 1912 to 1956, is the first book to really explore the first two-thirds of Rockefeller's life. A conversation with Kirk in about 12 minutes. Before that, Ozark's African-American frontier industrial pioneer Rock Van Winkle is the subject of a new article published in the spring edition of the Arkansas Historical Quarterly. As Ozark's at large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, little was known about this historic Arkansas African-American figure until now. Rock Van Winkle, Black Builder of Northwest Arkansas, is the title of the 38-page article by Christopher Huggard, a professor of history, and Jerry Harris-Moore, an adjunct professor of sociology, both at Northwest Arkansas Community College. Moore says the article profiles an early Arkansas Ozarks African-American entrepreneur. We both did our independent research, and we collaborated together uh, in our research, and I took the sociological perspective of how it fit into the society of that point at that point in time. Moore and Huggard spent over six months researching and reconstructing the life of Aaron Van Winkle, who later earned the nickname Rock. Born in Alabama into slavery, he was transported to Benton County, Arkansas, and purchased by Peter Van Winkle, who operated a wilderness sawmill and owned a dozen more enslaved African Americans. That was in the 1850s. I'm Chris Huggard. Rock Van Winkle was acquired sometime in the mid-1850s. We don't know the exact date. We do know that he then became part of the household and uh, operation, lumbering operation of Peter Van Winkle. In a place that became known as Van Winkle Hollow. Peter Van Winkle established his lumbering operation sawmill as early as the mid-1850s. By the time of the Civil War, it was a substantial mill where he had many workers, enslaved individuals, and among them, of course, was Rock Van Winkle. Van Winkle Mills record show first produced massive quantities of native oak, pine, walnut, hickory, and cherry lumber sold and shipped by wagon to builders across the region, most of that produced by forced slave labor. And when Civil War erupted, Peter Van Winkle, a Confederate, contributed lumber to the war effort, but was forced to flee after Confederate forces at Pea Ridge were defeated by Union forces, destroying Van Winkle's estate. Rock Van Winkle fled with his owner, but later returned with the family after the war, fully emancipated and willing to rebuild his former master's homestead, sawmill, and gristmill. Huggard says he worked for a dollar a day. Rock, of course, was central to not only uh, organizing the logging, but also doing the lumbering and earned the title of engineer. When they returned from Texas after the Civil War, they rebuilt the mill, which had been burned, had a 24-foot flywheel that ran the mill and then provided lumber for virtually all the towns of Northwest Arkansas and, of course, the most famous building they provided lumber for was Old Main at the University of Arkansas. Rock Van Winkle had married Jane Rush of Pea Ridge and, after the war, purchased an 80-acre farmstead at Osage Mill, raising a wealth of livestock as well as 10 children. 
Jerry Moore, by happenstance, knew the great-granddaughter of Rock Van Winkle. He attended church with her, Joe Hall, now deceased, born and raised in Bentonville, who later moved and settled in the heart of Fayetteville's African-American district. Most of history about Rock was not shared with his uh, relatives. So we opened up a door for his great-great-great-granddaughters that lives in Fayetteville today, a history that we bring into the entire area. One reason why so many African-American histories are finally coming to light is due to decades of violent racial cleansings across the South, giving way to decades more of Jim Crow segregation, derailing historical research. Moore says even Rock Van Winkle frequently suffered racial oppression. We have had some uh, uh, reports and what we read in newspaper articles that uh, many people tried to um, degrade him and make a point that he was out of his place. And he had a good reply. And Peter said at one time uh, that uh, Rock is with me. And sociologically, that gave uh, a Rock status. And that status was in, uh, I think, both, both communities both white and black communities. This is Chris, uh, and there are two really specific examples that are in the article. One is when he was in Rogers, sometime in the very late 1890s, near the turn of the 20th century, in which a white man suggested, since it was getting dark, that maybe Rock should leave. By the early 20th century, blacks were barred from staying the night in declared sundown towns across the South. They could be arrested, prosecuted, or worse. And Rock's response was that he didn't understand why this man was so concerned with this, because in his experience, what he noticed over in Bentonville, where he lived, is that all the prisoners were white, which is an extraordinary uh, uh, moment in which he stood up for himself. Bentonville, Fayetteville, and Eureka Springs were exceptions on the Arkansas Ozarks, having established African-American districts. But even when he was enslaved, Rock Van Winkle, due to his association with mill owner Peter Van Winkle, managed to somehow avoid being lynched. There was another case when he was living over at Osage Mills, near where XNA is today, and a woman, uh, in fact, would not allow him to eat with the other workers. Uh, who were working on a farm. Uh, Later on, she had some hard times. Her husband passed away, and she totally changed her perspective and actually went into business with Rock in uh, basically harvesting hogs. Reconstructing the life of an Ozarks African-American frontier industrialist and building a socio-historical context elucidated in the article required, Moore says, searching historical property, probate, census, and news archives, as well as interviewing a white Van Winkle descendant and sourcing a black Van Winkle descendant. Uh, We do have an account that uh, upon the death of Peter, uh, Rock was on the railroad, on the train, taking his, one of his children to college in, in, uh, in Virginia. Revealing just how Rock Van Winkle instilled in his offspring the importance of higher education, even though he lacked formal education himself. 
The sudden death of Peter Van Winkle in 1882, the article reveals, caused Rock Van Winkle deep anxiety. They write that although Rock was enslaved by Peter, he later considered him a mentor, employer, partner, and a tacit protector. Rock Van Winkle's death at age 74 in 1904 precipitated several newspaper obituaries, two with overt racist undertones, one titled, Faithful Old Slave Dead, another, A Good Darkie Gone to His Reward. Still, his funeral was attended by both blacks and whites, the authors say. Rock Van Winkle's properties will to his children were later sold off, but one still stands, Moore says. I have the privilege to walk through the house where Rock built in Bentonville and died in. Aaron Rock Van Winkle is buried in the Bentonville City Cemetery. His grave is marked with an obelisk monument capped with a stone Bible. The Peter Van Winkle estate and mill property is listed on the National Register of Historic Places in Hobbs State Park. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. A state panel is continuing discussions on barriers faced by women entrepreneurs. Governor Asa Hutchinson announced that he was reinstating the Arkansas Women's Commission in February. Members gathered for the third meeting yesterday to discuss the possible methods of gathering input from women around the state. Commission Chair Allison Williams urged the heads of subcommittees to reach out to their local communities to help identify problems and potential solutions. You know your communities, you know your topics, you know your members. And so if you want to bring in an expert, if you want to do additional research, it's helpful for us to know what's going on just so we are deconflicting. But I want you having meetings and hosting events or talking to your committee members, whatever way is best for you. Commission members discuss common barriers faced by women seeking entry into the STEM fields, including that the majority of those jobs are concentrated in Arkansas's two largest urban areas. Commission member Tamika Edwards said improving access to broadband internet in rural areas could help bridge that gap. It's important for us to think about the infrastructure that would support remote work, particularly in rural areas. And so that may be a point that we just want to examine, that we can promote and talk about remote work, but do individuals who live in those areas have access? The commission agreed to draft questions for the survey asking women about their experiences and difficulties in entering the workforce in Arkansas. Commission members agreed to have the survey run next September ahead of the December 1st deadline to deliver their findings to the governor and the state legislature. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, concludes its current main stage season Saturday, April 30th at Walton Arts Center with a celebration of human resilience, performing Mahler's intensely powerful Sixth Symphony under the baton of maestro Paul Haas. Tickets available at 443-5600 or sonamusic.org. Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families Annual Soup Sunday is April 24th, 4 to 6.30 at the Rogers Convention Center. This family-friendly event includes soup samplings, breads, and desserts donated from a variety of local restaurants and vendors. 927-9800 or aradvocates.org for tickets. This is Ozarks at Large. Winthrop Rockefeller is an interesting figure in Arkansas history. A member of arguably the most famous American family of much of the 20th century, he became the first Republican elected governor of Arkansas in nearly a century in 1966, when only about 10% of Arkansans self-identified as Republicans. He served two terms, 
publicly sparred with the state's prison system in an effort to reform it and advocated for increased education spending. His time as governor has been written about, but until now, there wasn't an in-depth examination of the first two-thirds of his life. John Kirk's new biography, Winthrop Rockefeller, From New Yorker to Arkansas Year, 1912 to 1956, explores his life before becoming governor. We reach Kirk, the George W. Donaghy Professor of History at the University of Arkansas Little Rock, by Zoom recently to discuss the book. He says there is a common perception that the Arkansas version of Winthrop Rockefeller is the result of a personal metamorphosis. In many ways, the book takes that head on and looks to dispel that myth. And a lot of the books that looks at this first two thirds of Winthrop Rockefeller's life, looks to emphasize the connections between his early first two thirds of his life and the last third of his life that he spent in Arkansas and tie the two together more tightly and look at how one is a sort of mirror reflection of the other. So the book really sort of tries to dispel that myth and takes that head on and um, and looks at it in a very different kind of way. It looks at, emphasizes the continuities rather than the discontinuities in Winthrop Rockefeller's life. And I want to talk about those continuities in a minute. I guess part of that perception comes from the fact that in the middle of the 20th century, it was hard for people both inside and outside Arkansas to fathom why a Rockefeller would be in Arkansas. That's right. And I think there are, you know, the book looks at both the long-term patterns in Winthrop Rockefeller's life that eventually led him to Arkansas, but also there were the immediate sort of triggers that uh, sent him to the place. Um, You know, in 1948, he married Barbara Sears in a kind of whirlwind romance. They had uh, Winthrop's only child, Wim Paul Rockefeller, who, of course, eventually became Lieutenant Governor of Arkansas. Uh, but only 18 months later, the couple separated and went through a pretty protracted divorce. Although they were only married for 18 months before they separated, it took almost four years for them to get divorced. And uh, during that time, the divorce was uh, in all the headlines of the popular press in New York and became a cause celebre during the times. And Winthrop tried to escape New York several times. He spent six months in Venezuela uh, escaping the headlines on one occasion, but then He eventually made a more permanent move to Arkansas in June of 1953. And it was certainly the divorce and the proceedings surrounding the divorce that sort of ultimately pushed him out of New York. But of course, he could have gone anywhere pretty much in the world he wanted to. He had the resources to do that and set up a new life anywhere he wanted. But uh, he chose Arkansas uh, because of a friend he'd met in the military when he was serving during the Second World War. Frank Newell was an insurance agent in Little Rock and uh, had spoken to Winthrop throughout their service overseas about the state and how he loved the state and its natural beauty and all those kinds of things. And after the war, when they both came back, Winthrop actually tried to convince Frank Newell to go to New York and work with him there in his enterprises. And Frank said, no, I can't leave Arkansas. I love it down here. I'm glad to be back. I'll see you in Arkansas before you see me in New York. And uh, that proved to be prophetic. And uh, Frank Newell said, you should come down here, uh, you know, to escape the headlines. And uh, Winthrop came. And Newell was the one who introduced him to Petty Jean Mountain, where he'd been on holidays. And, you know, he loved the place there. And Winthrop was smitten with it. And he decided to buy a tract of land there, which eventually became Winrock Farms. And uh, it's still there today, of course. You mentioned that there were consistencies. You write about the first two-thirds of his life, consistencies in his life from his New York time. 
that that move with him, that transition with him into Arkansas. When you say consistencies, what sort of things do you mean? I think you can look at a range of things, but I suppose um, if you look at, say, take, for example, race relations and Winthrop Rockefeller's commitment to race relations, you know, I think in the state, one of the things that uh, Winthrop Rockefeller is best known for is the stand that he took on the state capital steps just a few days after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King in Memphis, Tennessee. And he was the only Southern governor who prominently participated in a memorial service like that to King, and it's largely credited for, you know, having a more uh, moderate response in the state to it, whereas you know, the many other places were racked with um, violence and conflict. So, you know, we know Winthrop Rockefeller was very much a, a, a transitional figure in terms of race relations in the state. Um, he appointed more African-Americans to state government positions than ever before. He integrated draft boards in the state. So we know that. But if you look back, and his New York life, you can see that commitment was a long legacy uh, from his New York years. And he was involved in race relations in a number of different ways. But perhaps more significantly, he was very heavily involved with the National Urban League, which is based in New York and which is one of the so-called big six civil rights movements in the 1960s, uh, civil rights organizations in the 1960s. And he was on the board of trustees of that for 24 years. Uh, he was heavily involved after he came back from the Second World War and its activities, sat on a number of its committees, addressed the National Convention a number of times, and perhaps notably, most notably of all, uh, just before he left for Arkansas, he donated the equivalent of what today would be a million dollars so that the organization could purchase a new national headquarters. So Winthrop Rockefeller was pretty heavily invested in improving race relations before he came to the state. And it wasn't just a transformation overnight when he came to Arkansas. What we see in terms of race relations and his handling of race relations in Arkansas is very much in tune with the way that he handled race relations for the first two thirds of his life. And I think if you look across a wide range of different themes uh, that Rockefeller uh, and his interests that he exhibited in Arkansas, you can trace them back uh, quite directly to the first two thirds of his life in New York and the interests that he developed there. As you're looking at the first part of his life, do you see this? And of course, he came from a very public family. Do you see this move toward uh, holding public office? Does does that seem like a natural natural progression? Uh, not necessarily. No, um, it's kind of interesting. I think uh, that he eventually became governor uh, because, in many ways, I think he had sort of eschewed those typical um, managerial. Uh, office holding jobs that his brothers had gravitated towards. You know, they were Nelson, of course, his brother was governor of New York and vice president of the United States. His brother David was CEO of Chase Manhattan Bank. They all held those high profile positions. And Winthrop really had been much lower key than that and looked to uh, kind of work with his hands and was very much more of a grassroots person. You know, he left Yale University in 1934 to go work in the oil fields instead as a roustabout and worked his way up from the uh, bottom floor of the oil industry to a junior executive. And he really enjoyed, he, he said, you know, his days in the oil fields were some of the best days of his life. And uh, when he came back and, you know, joined the oil industry, uh, he enjoyed his job. He worked for Sacconi Vacuum Oil Company, which was a New York derivative of his grandfather's standard oil company. Uh, but he um, didn't really take to the civic life in New York 
and he joined up and volunteered for military service before the United States entered the uh, Second World War in January of 1941. And again, loved the military life there, loved serving amongst the rank and file, loved the adventure, and then came back to New York again. And again, had this marriage with uh, Barbara Sears. All his brothers were already married before the war and had children, started raising families. His family life, his married life didn't work out. So in some ways, I think the move to Winrock Farms was a kind of reconnection with his time in the oil fields, his time in the military service, going back to the kind of grassroots, working with his hands, back with the rank and file people. And that's where he seemed to be most comfortable uh, and uh, kind of had a, uh, you know, a life like that, lived his life like that. There. But being a Rockefeller, of course, he was drawn into public service in Arkansas and eventually uh, was drawn into politics and ended up being elected governor. But I don't think he came to the state with the idea of um, you know, becoming governor of the state or having a career in politics. I think, you know, Winrock Farms and the, the attraction of working with his hands and building something from the ground level uh, on his own was far more attractive. So I think the, the the public service and the political position kind of came incidentally afterwards and was driven largely by circumstances in the state. When researching some historical figures, there, there might be, be some initial hard work to find sources. When you're a Rockefeller in the 20th century, there's obviously, well, you mentioned headlines. There were, they were at times larger than life. I'm wondering what sort of sources you had and were there some unexpected uh, sources when researching Winrock's life? Yeah, well, there is a fantastic and extensive collection, uh, Winthrop Rockefeller collection here at the Center for Arkansas History and Culture, which is part of the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. There's over a thousand boxes of materials uh, ranging from letters, uh, business papers, uh, memorabilia, films, uh, oral history transcripts, all those kinds of things. So there's a huge amount of uh, material to go at, but uh, a lot of it hadn't been used before. A lot of it is untouched, even though it's been there for almost 50 years. And so, you know, I moved here in 2010 from the United Kingdom and uh, the Winthrop Rockefeller papers were... Uh, on my doorstep there, I'd already started the research beforehand, but of course, being close to the Winthrop Rockefeller collection here was a huge asset to that, and I managed to go and look through there. But, you know, like I said, a lot of it hasn't really been looked at before, so it was fascinating to go through the boxes and find out what was there, and there's a lot of hidden gems in there. I think one of the things that I uh, found most interesting and which was really useful in the book is that a lot of the materials that come from the first uh, two-thirds of Winthrop Rockefeller's life are based on a uh, memoir that he wrote just after he came back from the Second World War called A Letter to My Son. He wrote that uh, after uh, during his breakup from Bobo as a kind of memoir that he thought he might be able to pass on to his son, Win Paul. And that was published um, in the, and is presented to Wim Paul on his 21st birthday. But that manuscript ends just at the beginning of the Second World War. And for a whole complex of reasons, when he uh, commissioned this project, he had a ghostwriter to work with him. And the ghostwriter got that far just at the time he moved to Arkansas. And then uh, the ghostwriter uh, passed away not long after he moved to Arkansas. And what I discovered in the archives is that there's a whole rest of that manuscript that was never published that takes us from the beginning of the Second World War right through Winthrop Rockefeller's war years, which was kind of based on 
an extended oral history interview that the ghostwriter did with him in the late 1940s. So there's a whole section of uh, his autobiography that I discovered, his memoirs that I discovered, that I was able to use uh, to integrate into the research and write the rest of the story of Winthrop Rockefeller's New York life. So that was a really exciting find uh, to be able to use. Do we have an idea of his relationship with his family? And, you know, you mentioned Nelson, who was vice president, or Gerald Ford and and David. Uh, Do we get a sense of their relationship? Yeah, I think it was complicated over time. You know, the, he was part of the so-called brothers generation of the family. So there were five brothers who were outstanding figures in post-war American life and hugely influential figures. Of course, he had a sister as well, and she's often ignored in the so-called brothers generation, uh, Babs. Uh, he was the eldest of the, of the, of the siblings. Uh, but yeah, he had a complicated relationship with them over time. You know, uh, as a child, um, Nelson and Lawrence, who were the two children above him in the family in in terms of age, uh, mercilessly bullied him. So that kind of left scars on him. And, you know, uh, he had quite a different sort of set of values and sensibilities to they did. He was uh, more of an outlier in terms of his interests and his ability to mix outside of the family circles and, you know, to kind of do different kind of things and have different set of qualities to them. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the Rockefeller brothers from the late 1930s up to the mid-1970s were also seen very much as a unit too. You know, they formed the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, which still exists today, to coordinate their philanthropic activities. They formed Rick Rockefeller Brothers Inc. to coordinate their business activities. So there's a high level of cooperation between them uh, as they went their own ways as well. But yeah, Winthrop did by moving to Arkansas was kind of geographically the most distant and was the the kind of, um, you know, identifiable outlier of the brothers. But, you know, it was complex as it is in any family set of shifting relationships over time. But, you know, they had their disagreements, but they also had a high level of cooperation between them as well. John Kirk is the author of Winthrop Rockefeller, From New Yorker to Arkansas, 1912 to 1956. He is the George W. Donaghy Professor of History at the University of Arkansas, Little Rock. He spoke with us via Zoom earlier this month. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation, the Rave Cultural Foundation, Durana Academy of Classical Dance, and Trike Theater are teaming together to produce The Jungle Book, a new adaptation that combines Indian dance, music, and theatrical storytelling. Auditions for those eight years old and older will be held May 14th and 15th. Triketeater.org forward slash auditions for more information. This is Ozarks at Large, and I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. KUAF's podcast blockchain, The Future of Money, is guiding us through the world of digital and cryptocurrency. Think of it as a concierge for exploring the new avenues of currency. The latest episode begins a discussion of NFTs, non-fungible tokens. This is The Future of Money, a podcast where we hope to educate and get educated about the new world of blockchain and digital money. My name is Eric Denbor, and I will be your host. Welcome back to the podcast, The Future of Money. I think today we should start talking about NFTs just a little bit, maybe. I think you're right. I think you're right. I think we should also introduce that we have someone else with us this time. Hello. Yes, I'm Jasper, Jasper Logan. I'm happy to uh, be on this train. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's good to have you here, man. Yeah, Yeah. moving into the future. All right. 
So yeah, what is an ENFT? Well, let's start in the beginning. NFT stands for non-fungible token, which means that um, uh, think about something that's fungible. You can, you know, a pen is something that you can hold in your okay. hand. It's a fungible thing. Uh, uh, non-fungible means that uh, it's something that lives on the internet or on a blockchain or something like that. You can't really grab it, hold it, but it's still there. And it exists in one space or multiple spaces, or where does it live, actually? That is a good question because the thing is that it could live on different places because you can have uh, an NFT that lives on the Ethereum blockchain, for instance, okay. or you can have an NFT that lives on the Cardano blockchain as an example. And depending on where you then store it, that's going to be the platform it's stored on. The NFT, the non-fungible token, though, is uh, it's a piece of code that is like a, an identifier. Is yes. that correct? Yes. So let's talk about that. Like, what is it identifying? What is it correlated to? So today, for instance, we take everybody thinks about NFTs when it's about music and art and stuff like that. So let's take a picture. Uh, someone is minting a picture on an NFT chain, uh, Ethereum, let's say, and they were making just a certain amount of that picture. And then what they do is they attach a code to that picture and that code will then live on the blockchain and you can't change that code so that code is uh, um, is connected with that picture so you basically then own that picture that is that code that's on the blockchain if i purchase a nft on i don't know uh some website like uh, nike.com mm -hmm. if i purchase a nike shoe nft on nike.com that nft lives on nike.com i can't take it with me i can't download it and take it with me and put it in like my phone or my computer unless i visit it through nike.com yes or okay. you take you sit there and you take an image off that you know picture but, anybody, but even can do, it, anybody can do that but even if i take a picture of it it's not the actual code is it no. Yeah. And that, that, is the, that is the part that, you know, um, is getting re discussed a lot right now because they want to try to solve that. And I personally, I think having some kind of wallet where you actually own the picture and the picture can be on there and then you can do what you want. I'm not 100% sure how that would be solved or how it would work, but I can see that happening maybe in the future, definitely. The thing that I like to remember about it, and the VHS Betamax story is such a great example, because it was driven by consumers. Like, mm -hmm. consumers chose VHS. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. So there is power in what you choose mm -hmm. to partake in and yeah. buy. Yeah. Again, that's kind of like one of the cornerstones of what why we're doing this podcast, right? Yes. To so remind I, people. I, yeah, I, and, and I agree with you, because the thing is that the more people that get involved in blockchain and cryptocurrency and mm. stuff like that, they're going to find out that, hey, I really like this system, I'm going to start moving over to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. and, and it's sort of in a similar way of thinking. NFTs are like that's me saying this is mine. Mm -hmm. I I, I mm -hmm. own this. This is the yes. identifier. It is mine. So it's mm -hmm. kind of it's the same kind of thing of taking 
taking that agency. Absolutely. Yes. Mm. If you have questions about NFTs, about anything that we discussed uh, in this episode or in previous episodes of the podcast, you can send your questions in through the KUAF app for iPhone and iPad. You just hit the connect button and then uh, send your question in. It comes directly to the station. You can also call us old school like at 479-575-6577 and leave us a message and we'll answer your questions. There are no stupid questions. Remember that. Just just bring them and we'll see what we can do. Blockchain, the future of money is a podcast produced by KUAF. All episodes are available through on-air and podcast button at KUAF.com or by simply subscribing through any major podcast distributor. And there are other KUAF podcasts, Undisciplined, which is produced in conjunction with the African and African-American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas, Resilient Black Women with Joy McGowan and Denisha Simpson, that's dedicated to conversations about access to mental health. And Points of Departure, produced in conjunction with Arkansas Global Changemakers. And our latest podcast, Natural Election, examining the mechanics of elections. All are free and all are available for you now. And now, we continue our tour of University of Arkansas history, courtesy of Charlie Allison, the executive editor at University Relations. This week, he delivers the background on the school's alma mater. As I entered my last year as an undergraduate student in the University of Arkansas Department of Journalism, the university hired a new chair of the department. His name was Bob Douglas, and he had been managing editor of the Arkansas Gazette. He moved up to Fayetteville before the fall semester and found an apartment south of campus to live in temporarily until his wife could move to Fayetteville and they could find a house. A couple of my journalism friends said we should go by his apartment and give him a welcome. I liked the idea, even though it was already well into the evening, perhaps a bit late to be calling on someone we hadn't really met yet. When we knocked on his door, though, Mr. Douglas was wide awake and welcomed us in. We sat and talked. He had a glass of something that he drank as we introduced ourselves and started talking about newspapers and then moved on to journalism department background. Really gossip, I suppose. Mr. Douglas had a voice that sounded like he was talking from way back in his throat. So half the time it resembled mumbling, and the other half it sounded like he had a rice cake stuck between his larynx and uvula. But we leaned in and listened closer. At some point, Mr. Douglas, perhaps getting a touch tipsy by then, held up his hand to stop the conversation. In a quite serious tone, he looked at each of us and asked if any of us knew the words to the university's alma mater. Well, I thought for a second. I knew the first line, and I was pretty sure I could struggle through the last quarter of the first verse if I could remember how it started, but I wasn't sure what was in between. My two friends had totally blank faces. Mr. Douglas surveyed our dumbfounded looks and chastised us for not knowing the alma mater. He said, every student should have the alma mater memorized. We looked at each other and thought he might be pulling our respective legs, but then he launched into singing the song, gravelly voice and all. He sang all the way through all three of its verses. He knew them by heart. (laughs) And by the final line, Mother of mothers, we pray unto you. My friends and I knew that the Department of Journalism was in good hands and didn't need our prayers. So to give Mr. Douglas his due, here's some background on the university's alma mater. In March 1909, the student newspaper ran a 72-point all-caps headline across the top of its front page, $50 for a varsity song. The subhead said, try writing a varsity song. 
The editors anticipated the obvious questions since no standards had been put forward for the song. Should it be short or long? Ridiculous or sublime? Chorus or not? Words and music? Words without music? Or music without words? And may I hand in more than one entry? <laughs> well, the newspaper described the intent, quote, The song must be to the university what my country tis of thee or the star-spangled banner is to the United States. That was a lofty goal for sure. The paper said, quote, Let everybody get into the contest. Alumni, professors, students, friends of the university, show your college spirit if you have any. If not, show how easy it is to pick up this $50. We need your song, and you need that $50. Get busy. Students raised most of the money for the prize, but the president of the university, John Tillman, also put up $10 as part of the $50 prize offered for a new university song. Accounting for inflation, a $50 prize in 1909 would be worth more than $1,500 in today's dollars. Not too shabby for jotting off a few rhymes. A committee made up of President Tillman, a professor of chemistry Charles Carroll, and a professor of music Henry Tovey would judge the entries. When all was said and done, they chose a song written by alumnus Brody Payne. Payne was from Hot Springs and came to the university as a freshman in 1901. He resurrected the university literary magazine in 1905 and renamed it The New Ozark, editing it through his senior year. He enjoyed writing poetry, so he took a stab at writing the varsity song and submitted what turned out to be the winning lyrics. He titled the song Alma Mater. He wrote three verses, and here's the first verse. Pure is the dawn on the brow of thy beauty. Watches thy soul from the mountains of God, over the fates of thy children departed, far from the land where their footsteps have trod. Beacon of hope in the ways dreary lighted, pride of our hearts that are loyal and true, from those who adore unto one who adores us, mother of mothers, we sing unto you. The words of the alma mater, all three verses, were published in the May 12th edition of the University Weekly, along with a short story about the contest. The newspaper also published the second and third place entries. Second place went to senior George J. Moore, a student from Bentonville who was associate editor of the student newspaper. And third place went to senior Cecil Cash, a student from Texarkana who also wrote for the student newspaper. Henry D. Tovey, professor of music and director of the university's glee club, was enlisted to arrange the music as a hymn with a somber, stately timbre. Some say it might actually be dirge-like. <laughs> Since then, some of its phrases have gained more currency than others. The very first line, Pure as the dawn on the brow of thy beauty, evokes a picture of early morning on campus that I could relate to. My freshman year, I had a 7.30 English composition course in the original chemistry building, and I walked to campus from Mount Sequoia, often seeing the morning light hit Old Main and the campus, while the rest of the city was still in the shadow of Mount Sequoia. Similarly, the phrase Beacon of Hope is a natural line for explaining the highest hopes for a university and its students. The second verse of Brody Payne's song uses the phrase Springtime of Youth, which was repurposed by the university's Headliner Concerts Committee in 2015 for the name of its annual music festival, a festival that still goes on and will be held another week from now. Today, the melody of the alma mater is played each weekday by the chimes of Old Main, right after the five o'clock sounding. Bob Douglas would approve. University of Arkansas alma mater as it sounds each evening on campus. 
Our explorations into the University of Arkansas history are a celebration of the school's 150 years and are created by Charlie Allison, the executive editor at University Relations. More about the observations of the school's 150th anniversary can be found at 150.uark.edu. Walton Arts Center's 10x10 Art Series presents the Mingus Big Band, Friday, April 29th. Celebrating one of the most important figures in 20th century American music, bassist, pianist, band leader, and composer Charles Mingus, whose legacy includes over 100 albums and over 300 compositions. WaltonArtsCenter.org or 443-5600 for tickets. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Rachel, sometime in the last few weeks, you were telling me about a couple of apps That made it sound like my life could be easier. So I gave you a request. Of course. Find me some apps that make my life better. I have. I think we started the idea with one or two apps um, that help make life a lot easier and just solve those annoying nuances of everyday life. Just those small problems. Not big enough, right, to warrant a huge change, but important enough to where if I have an app that can fix it, why not? This first one you have on this list is called Truebill. What is Truebill? Truebill is a pretty interesting app that allows you to track your budget and finances. And what I love most about Truebill is it has a feature that that allows you to track your subscriptions. And personally, I'm pretty guilty of starting subscriptions and kind of forgetting that I have subscribed to them or even when they renew or, you know, renew before this date. And Truebill is a really useful app when it comes to canceling them, and they do have a feature that allows them to cancel it for you. I was going to ask because I have had subscriptions that when I call or try to – it takes forever, and it yes. I know what they're doing. You finally say, you know what, I'll do that later, and then you don't unsubscribe. Yeah, I'll give up. I'll get back to it, and you never do. So if you're a person that struggles with forgetting about the subscriptions or – um, when they renew, this is pretty useful. And I think even if it's a really complicated uh, subscription that you want to cancel, they you enter in a couple like small details um, and a little bit of information. And for the most part, they'll take care of it for you. Does Truebill cost me anything? It is free. I, there is a premium version that's between 3 and $12. It's pretty interesting. It's on a sliding scale. And you pay them whatever you think the app is worth Mm. between $3 and $12. Um, And the premium comes with unlimited budgets, helps you really customize um, your finances. And for those cancellations that are a little bit trickier, involve more details, they have like a concierge that can take care of that for you and even negotiate some of your bills. um, If you're a homeowner especially and you're paying pretty high prices on electricity, water, et cetera, all types of bills, um, they can negotiate that and get a... A smaller, a cheaper price for you. I got you. True bill, and that's one word. Yes. Okay, the next one you have here is Meal Me. Meal Me. If you're a person that really likes DoorDashing, Uber Eats, this is probably an app that you should check out. It aggregates and compares all of the major restaurant delivery apps um, and gets you the, the cheapest price. I found that with Meal Me, um, when you're just getting your normal order, it's between $1 to $3 cheaper than what you would get at, at DoorDash. Um, it usually cuts through delivery fees and sees, like, between DoorDash, Uber Eats, Postmates, what has the cheapest or free um, delivery fee. 
but I think it's best used when you have the deals that they have on the page. So if you would just want to scroll casually and aren't tied to one specific restaurant, um, it's really, really helpful, whatever deals they have on the page. And usually that's where you're going to get the best bang for your buck. And I will point out that a friend of the show, Chris Selby, has uh, Clunk's Hungry Express Wagon Chew, which delivers, because most of the DoorDashes are chains, right? Yes. And and Chew, which is based in Fayetteville, is with local restaurants. All local? Wow. Yeah. Uh, Planta? Planta, yes. So next on the list is for the wannabe gardeners out there. This app is, I mean, as detailed as you want it to be. And it explains a lot of the minutia details um, that I think newcoming, newcoming gardeners don't think about, myself included. Namely, like, I think a lot of the care instructions when you go and buy a plant are what, like, how, how many times to water it and, you know, whatever light you're supposed to place it in. But I don't exactly know what kind of lights, um, dark light, shade, or, you know, it seems something self-explanatory, but a, lot, a little bit more complicated when you're like, where, where should I place this plant in a room? And so Planta takes care of that, and it, it explains those details, where to place your plants in the room, figuring out what kind of light it needs, temperature, and even humidity. Um, and it ha- even has a guide of how much light you can get. Um, depending on how close you place the plant to a window, which frankly is a detail I didn't even consider oh, wow. when yeah. trying to be a gardener. <laughs> I like that. Uh, how much does Planta cost? Planta is free. Um, the premium version does start at seven ninety nine a month, and it has features um, where it has a plant identifier, Ooh. identifier, light meter, potting schedules. Um, so if you don't want to go through the trouble of reading and kind of figuring out the guides for yourself, you can just take a picture of your plant and where it is in the room, and it'll figure out, is this the best place for it? Is this the kind of plant that you think it is? Oh. Um, and how often you should Water. I think the watering guide is free, um, but some of the more like, how often should I repot this? You know, etc. Those are on the premium version. Planta. That's P L A N T A. Yes. What else you got for us? I also have Unroll Me. Um, if you find yourself with an overwhelmingly full inbox and I'm no, I- I'm listening. Yes. <laughs> and no idea how to start clearing it out or where to cancel those email subscriptions that are only making your inbox fuller, Unroll Me can help. Now, it doesn't necessarily delete emails, but it doesn't stop uh, or it does stop more unwanted emails and newsletters from cluttering that inbox and helping you find out where am I getting all of these, you know, newsletters and and unwanted emails from, which is a first part in figuring out and solving the problem. Is it cost much? It's free. How? Do they send you ads? I mean, I guess that seems counterintuitive because if I'm subscribing to Unroll Me, I don't want more things from them. It's ad fr- ad free, um, and it has a pretty neat feature to where it'll go through all of your subscri- or all of your subscriptions that you have on your email and tell you, do you want to keep this? Do you want to delete it entirely and ups- unsubscribe, or do you want to just keep it on the back burner and kind of and what their app refers to as roll up and keep it on the back burner. I don't want to delete it, but I don't want to see more emails from it right now. <laughs> Unrolling. And that's two words. Yes. All right. So we heard about Truebill, Meal Me, Planta, and Unroll Me. If you have an annoying little problem in your life that you would like to have some closure with, to have help solving, 
let us know. And I bet you can find us an app, eh? Absolutely. We'll try. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. We've all heard it. We've probably even said it ourselves. But things have changed over the past two years. Some things have not changed, including our listeners and members wanting to do anything they can to help out their community. And now things are beginning to happen again, and our local nonprofits are needing our help. In the past, a KUAF volunteer had the single role of answering telephones during our on-air fundraisers. And while that was an incredibly important role, we've got bigger ideas now, and we want to share them with you. Join us for KUAF Reengage, a drop-in event Friday, April 22nd, here at the Carver Center for Public Radio. From 5 to 7 that evening, we'll have food and refreshments, a live DJ, local nonprofit groups in need of your help, and information on KUAF's plans to re-engage our listeners to the public's needs. KUAF Reengage, April 22nd. You can make a reservation to attend at our website, KUAF.com. The Arkansas Center for the Book is picking Emily St. John's novel, Sea of Tranquility, as the 2022 If All Arkansas Read the Same Book, book. Sea of Tranquility is a novel of art, time, love, and plague that takes the reader from Vancouver Island in 1912 to a dark colony on the moon 500 years later, unfurling a story of humanity across centuries in space. Emily St. John Mandel is the best-selling author of numerous novels, including The Glass Hotel and Station Eleven. She'll discuss Sea of Tranquility as well as the craft of writing in a live virtual visit Thursday, July 28th, beginning at 6.30. The program will take place via Zoom and will also be live-streamed on the Arkansas State Library's YouTube channel. Friday, students from high schools across the River Valley will compete for honor and scholarships at the University of Arkansas Fort Smith's annual welding rodeo from 9.30 to 1.30 in the Balder Technology Center. The event will feature 59 welding students representing 10 school districts enrolled in the university's Western Arkansas Technical Center program. The first, second, and third place winners will receive a $2,000 scholarship to UAFS. Author and former reporter Keith O'Brien will be in Benville on April 29th and 30th to celebrate the release of his new book, Paradise Falls, The True Story of an Environmental Catastrophe. On Friday, April 29th, Thaden School will host O'Brien at their campus on Southeast C Street. Saturday, the 30th, O'Brien will visit Bentonville Public Library. Two Friends Book, co-hosting both days of events. And let's hear it for the radio guy, Bobby Estel, better known to millions of radio listeners as Bobby Bones, will receive an honorary degree from the University of Arkansas this spring. The nationally syndicated radio host and best-selling author didn't attend the university, but he's a well-known supporter and contributor to the school. He'll be awarded the honorary degree at spring commencement, May 14th. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A Northeast Arkansas editor received national recognition in her 34-year career. Born in Mississippi in 1904, Esther Bendersky and her parents moved to Lepanto in 1922. Serving as an aid worker during the 1927 flood, she also sent information to the Memphis Commercial Appeal, later becoming a contributor for that newspaper. In 1937, publisher Guy Graves established the Lepanto News Record and asked Bendersky to be editor. She would be the newspaper's sole employee until her death, writing every article as well as selling and designing ads and taking photographs. A charter member of the Arkansas Newspaper Women, Bendersky received many first-place awards from state and national press organizations and was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for a 1955 photo of a train wreck. Also serving as a correspondent, the National Literary Digest published her full-page article on the Lepanto Terrapin Derby. Esther Bendersky died in 1971. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. 
The Fayetteville Roots Festival's lineup for this summer is now set. Headliners include the Wood Brothers, Taj Mahal, Betty LeVette, and the North Mississippi All-Stars. Many of the festival favorites are returning this year, too, like the Brother Brothers, Joe Purdy, Shannon Wurst, Jay Wagner, and Melissa Carper. The festival will take place August 25th through the 27th. Venues this year include the Fayetteville Town Center, the Fayetteville Public Library, and the Roots HQ just off the Fayetteville Square. Much more information at FayettevilleRoots.org. While Roots has been part of the musical landscape for more than a dozen years here, another festival staged for the first time this approaching September is collecting plenty of attention. The inaugural Format Festival will be in Bentonville in late September and feature dozens of musical acts, from Herbie Hancock to Beach House to The War on Drugs to Flaming Lips. The festival's name indicates the relationship it will have with tech. In fact, Format, all caps, means for music, art, and technology. Tickets go on sale Friday at format-festival.com. Bentonville Together, a celebration of our multicultural community, will take place this Saturday from 4 until 9 p.m. on the Bentonville Square. The festival is a joint production of Downtown Bentonville Incorporated and the Bentonville DEI Community Task Force. There will be live music and performances presented by Mariachi Amistad, Island Pacific Dances of Northwest Arkansas, the Rave Cultural Foundation, the Bentonville West High School Band, and others. There will also be a community art project that's curated by the Bentonville History Museum. There will be food and much more. This event is free and it is open to the public. This is KUAF 91.3, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Marble. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Timothy Dennis produced our show today inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich and Charlie Allison. Additional content today came from the news staff at KUAR Public Radio in Little Rock. Our thanks to Eric DeBoer, Lee Wood, and Jasper Logan for the latest podcast episode of Blockchain, The Future of Money. You can find all the episodes of the podcast at KUAF.com or through your preferred podcast provider. Speaking of podcasts, there is an Ozarks at Large podcast that you can subscribe to for free. That, too, is available through all major podcast services. We will return with a brand new edition of Ozarks at Large tomorrow, noon and 7 p.m. Timothy Dennis will be with us. He'll have a rundown of live music in our area for the coming week. And Kyle talks with a pair of actors in Theater Squared's latest production, The Elaborate Entrance of Chad Deity. Thanks for being with us today. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. I'm Kyle Kellums. Hey, thanks also to Daryl Sean, who created our uh, theme. It's titled The First Hurrah. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. We will be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7.